Shooting Broadcast, a fascinating round in three, two, one. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Fascinating Nouns. Now, if you are listening to this transmission, we are still the galaxy's most trusted source for incredible people, places, things, and ideas. Now, together we arrive at this curious nexus point, and we will explore the strange, unusual, offbeat, bizarre, intriguing, interesting, invigorating, quirky, quaint, quizzical, weird, wild, wacky, the fun, the frivolous, and the fringe, plus all the spaces in between. I am your host, Daniel J. Glenn. You know, I bet a lot of people listening to this episode, when you say who's at the top of the evol- of the evolutionary charts, you probably think us. Probably human beings are the first thing that come to mind. Uh, and there's a strong argument for that. We have gigantic brains and they have it has allowed us to overcome almost everything that nature has thrown at us. It has allowed us to be you know, an invasive species across the entire planet. And as a matter of fact, we are changing the very nature of the planet by our uh, by our existence and the fact that we are everywhere and there's bazillions of us. That's a technical number. And, you know, th- I think that that's not exactly true. You know, I mean, everything I just said is 100% true, but, but we're not at the top evolutionarily speaking. Uh, we have lots of design flaws. As a matter of fact, the human body is riddled with design flaws, and that is the topic of today's episode, the design flaws of the human body. We're going to talk to Dr. Nathan Lentz, who wrote an incredible book called Human Errors. Uh, you know, when, when the things that are at the top from an evolutionary standpoint, sharks, cockroaches, things that have remained unchanged for millions of years, we've really only remained, you know, we, we've gone through tons of changes, and we've only been around for a couple hundred thousand years, maybe. Uh, we're relatively new, and, and there's been lots of changes. Cockroaches have essentially the same since dinosaurs roamed the earth, uh, which is, that's, that's when you know you've made it, when you've been around that long. So, here we're going to get into these design flaws. We got lots of them, and they are just fascinating. Uh, most of them don't affect your day-to-day life, obviously, but but some do, and some may once you find out about them. So let, I just want to get right into this. So, Doctor Nathan Lenz, thank you so much for being on the show today. Now, I got to tell you, this book is is absolutely amazing. It kind of changed my life, and I, and I don't. That's not really hyperbole, um, because you know. I've always thought of myself as basically flawless. You know, I'm physically gifted. I'm incredibly intelligent. You know, uh, I see myself as a sterling reproductive partner. Um, but your book kind of changed all that, you know, I, and I'm not sure about any of those statements. And I really don't know whether to thank you for exposing my faults so I can better prepare myself or I should be disturbed at the fact that I'm extraordinarily frail um, and extremely fallible. I, I don't know where I fall on that on that line, Dr. Lenz. I'm perfectly honest. Well, with you. let me tell you, uh, I do think it's it's a little comforting to know that um, none of us is perfect. Um, but I don't know that I'd use the word frail. I do think the 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 thing to remember about anyone, especially if you if you have a high opinion of any performance measure, mm-hmm. um, that you might be very well adapted for certain tasks in a certain environment. Um, but that's all subject to change. Um, it's all it's all subject to luck. So if we put you with your skill set and whatever your natural proclivities are into all kinds of different environments that exist in the world today, and especially if we go backwards in time, you might not have been quite so special. So that that's always a humbling thought. How dare um, you? <laughs> How I think it's you? always a humbling thought that whatever we're good at is is largely a function of luck, and that we happen to be in an environment where that can actually take fruit. <laughs> okay. So I'm going to go with the extraordinarily dis- disturbed with you for pointing these things out. I'm going to go with that one. Uh, Fair enough. Um, well, I mean, it was, it was pretty amazing to think because, you know, especially with the way, I mean, human beings definitely have a high opinion of themselves. <laughs> as, as no a doubt, species. no doubt about it. Pinnacles uh, so, of creation. And all <laughs> right, right, right. So it is. It is kind of interesting to see all the different things that are really kind of wrong with us. Uh, now, what made you specifically want to get into dissecting, you know, kind of the goof ups, the evolutionary goofs in, in the human body? Well, you know what's interesting is that I um, I assumed a book like this had already been written. Um, because there are books out there about sort of quirky, weird design out in nature. Mm -hmm. Um, so not in any way focusing on humans, but just from all kinds of things. In fact, 
Um, actually, one of Richard Dawkins' books called The Blind Watchmaker has a few examples of weird design and other, other animals. Um, so that was one thing. And then also some of the um, individual chapters of my book have been written as their own entire book. Like there, you can get books on cognitive bias, for example, and and some of those do cover the evolutionary part of it. You can also find books about um, the genome. Um, and in fact, actually, uh, Junk in the Genome, that's the name of my chapter. There's a, there's a uh, book called Junk DNA that I actually reviewed uh, a few years ago that came out f- uh, from Columbia University Press. So a lot of this has been gathered in various ways, but nobody had sort of taken a global look at humanity, at, at human beings. Uh, and 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 focus that lens on evolutionary mismatch and poor design and vestigial structures and that. no one had ever sort of cataloged um, all throughout the human body and mind. So I was it was one of those moments that a writer always hopes they'll have, and that is that you think of something that hasn't been written yet before. Right. <laughs> so I got really lucky that it hadn't nobody thought to write that yet. And that kind of falls into what you said earlier, whereas maybe your skill set wouldn't have been great, you know, 100 years ago, but you happen to fall right. to the right point in time where you could write this book and basically change um, people's thinking of themselves. Uh, and I, I love Junk in the Genome. That's, first of mm-hmm. all, that's a, a great chapter, uh, just a great chapter title, um, you know, mm-hmm. content notwithstanding, great, great title. And vestigial structures, I love those. And we're going to get into some of those because there's two things um, that that you that you don't talk about in the book, and we'll get to you know the book in a second. Well, I, actually, you know what? I I I I, I want to talk about you for. A, can we can we focus on you for a second? Do you, do you mind if we? Uh... This is my favorite topic. Okay, <laughs> wonderful. And you're probably an expert on it, I imagine, which <laughs> makes this perfect timing. Uh, <laughs> I try. So you you actually are into a lot of really interesting things, including, uh, you know, the human being's microbiome, mm-hmm. uh, specifically the necrobiome. I'd never heard that word before, but that's essentially the microbiome after the body dies. And you kind of mm-hmm. do studies to determine, um, you know, time of death and, and how it relates to crime scene investigation, um, as well as the genetic differences amongst houseplants and trace residue as it relates to crime scenes. Uh, both mm-hmm. of those are extraordinarily different, although mm-hmm. kind of tied. Uh, mm-hmm. Tell me a little bit about those. Those are fascinating. Well, um, you, if you look at the published research that I've done, so for, put my books aside for a second and just think about the uh, peer-reviewed articles. You know, I, I publish two or three articles a year, uh, you know, in a good year. Um, and a, and a, lot, a brief look would make it seem like I'm all over the place that I have uh, no sort of steady research program, that I'm always just jumping from area to area. And in one sense, that's correct. But actually, there are common threads through all of my work, and there's there's two of them. First of all, I work in a forensic science program, so I'm always doing forensic science research, mostly because the students in the program, that's what they need to do to you know write their thesis and that kind of thing. So I end up as a, as a mentor on some of these forensic science projects, and then we design the projects together and do them. So that's why there's a forensic bend to about half of my research. But the other thing that's in common with all of them that you have to dig a little deeper to see it is that it all has to do with genetics and specifically DNA sequences. Mm-hmm. So my work beginning in the 90s when I was working on soybeans and nematodes oh, wow. uh, all, the way th- all the way through now, I've always really enjoyed working with DNA sequences, meaning these elements in, in our genome and what their function is, how they function and how they derive their function from the sequence. So if you look at the microbiome work that I did, the postmortem microbiome work that I, that I did, and that is ongoing. Um, how we identify all of those species is by their DNA sequences, by little signatures or barcodes, however you want to think about it, uh, in their DNA um, that allows us to identify them and classify them. And what I love about that approach is that you don't have to know anything about the bacteria ahead of time. It is a totally unbiased approach. You don't know what you're going to find and you don't bias yourself by any kind of identification technique. Instead, you sequence the DNA. Now, it may be possible, and in fact, it happens every time we do an experiment, that some of the bacteria that we sequence, whose DNA we sequence, they have never been explored before. They've never been identified or characterized. But it's still not a dead end for us because we have that DNA sequence. We know what kind of bacteria it is. So we might not know the species, but we'll know the order or the class or the phylum, you know, which, which category it falls into in the taxonomic classification. And that's useful information. So all of my work 
is basically me going blind reading A's and C's and G's and T's um, and then wow. try, trying to make sense of those and what they do. And so um, and by the way, uh, the most of those projects have now either been published or are moving on. I'm really focusing on the human genome uh, of late. So I, it, it's a it's a big genome, bigger than most of the genomes I've been working with. And I'm going to be reading those A's and C's and G's and looking for cool, interesting things that haven't been found yet. What, so when you discover new bacteria species, do you get to name them? I mean, it it's actually blows my mind you're actually to be able to find brand new species. Yeah, well, you could uh, if you were to go in and characterize them. The, the way this works is there's so, there are so many bacteria that have yet to be characterized that pretty much any time you do an experiment like this, there will be tons, tons of them. And, but just because you find them doesn't mean you get to name them because, then, because what I do is I take a swab – and I break open all the bacteria, and then I isolate the DNA. So once I've done that, there's no way to go backwards. So all I have is the DNA. If I wanted to actually name that bacterial species, I'd have to isolate it, like intact, living mic- uh, you know, microbe, uh, grow it up, and then do all kinds of work to characterize it and see what its properties are. The way I do my experiments, it's too late. I break open all the cells and release their DNA, so the story's over. So all I, I could publish the sequences, and of course we do that because every time you do these kind of work, you have to make your data sets available. So the sequences are out there, but they're just sort of unclassified. And I won't get the I don't get the prerogative of naming the bacteria unless I go do the work to isolate it and characterize it. Oh man, I mean, don't you want like a lensosoma running around out there? Uh, yeah. <laughs> I suppose that could be an interesting interesting thing to do, but I haven't haven't gone that way yet. Oh man. Uh, if you like talking about yourself, you got to name something after yourself. This is the perfect place to do it. I want to get into this because I'd love to have a bacteria named after me. Um, so I may, I may clean up your work. You let you do the hard stuff, and I'll just isolate it. And um, you know, well, it's in. it's not really that hard to do if you really wanted to get in there and characterize some of these uncharacterized bacteria. There's a roadmap of how to do that. Um, oh, I want to characterize them for sure. Yeah, it's really not. It's really not that difficult. You just need a lot of lab equipment. That's that's what's the daunting thing for a lot of people is you have to purchase all this, you know, scientific equipment, which doesn't right. come cheap. But right. um, yeah. <laughs> well, so not only one other thing because you you were quoted in this really cool paper about the microbiome in someone's mouth. Uh, which I find interesting. I was going to ask you where do you get the bodies to do all of these necrobiome tests, but I assume they're mm-hmm. they're crime scene. Uh, are, or are you a resurrectionist? How does that kind of work? No. So um, there are four. Actually, I believe there's five now decomposition research facilities in the United States. Um, I only have an affiliation with one of them, and that is the one. It's called the Anthropological Research Facility at the University of Tennessee in Knoxville. And the way this works is for a long time. Um, all of the bodies were actually donated by the coroner. So what happens mm. is if in the state or in the county of Knoxville, in the state of Tennessee, if a body uh, you know, comes into the possession of the coroner and nobody claims it for 30 days, it becomes in the custody of the coroner. And it's, it's his body to do uh, whatever he wants with. And so in Knoxville, he would the coroner would donate uh, these unclaimed bodies to the research facility. Uh, and then they would go out there and be placed and be studied. Um, nowadays, more than half, and, and that still happens, but nowadays more than half of the bodies there, um, and oh, I'm sorry, actually that doesn't happen at all anymore. They've been able to completely replace that. But now what they do is there's two halves, two kinds of bodies that come there. One are a body dies and the family uh, either can't or won't um, you know, pay for the funeral and disposal and burial. So they'll actually donate it. So the family donates it, um, right after death to the research facility, because it's basically the cheapest thing you can do. Uh, it doesn't cost any money whatsoever. They'll, if it's in within a hundred miles, the facility will go and pick up the body and the, and the family can be done with it. Or, and about half of the bodies come this way, the bodies are pre-registered. So there are people who sign up to have their body go to this facility when they die. And this facility has been going on since the 1970s, so it's pretty famous uh, in the area. And there are a lot of volunteers that have happily signed up to have their body go to this kind of research. Um, and if you think about it, it's the it's kind of your final gift. It's the, it's the one thing that we can't get any other way. And um, you know, your final act to be this gigantic act of generosity. I think it's a wonderful thing that the donors do. <laughs> so there's no, it's all, you use the word donor, so there's no money involved in the priest signing up. 
No, there's no money. No. no money changes hands for any of this, and that's why. Well, the research won't. division makes. They, I mean, they make money. So, so they make tons of money on donations and. Right. No, no, they don't make any money. They have to write grants to get the money to do their work, but nobody makes any money. I mean, they have a salary, but that, again, that comes either from the university or from the grants that they write. Okay. Um, right. Yeah, yeah, and there is a permanent staff, but actually, believe it or not, most of the staff of the facility, the regular staff that documents each day's decay, you know, the state of each body every day, five yeah. days a week, they those are decay. students. Oh, those wow. are students. Um, so they're completing it for academic credits and, um, yeah, it's not as expensive an operation as you would think. Um, I mean, it does cost money, but they, most of the research is actually funded. My, my project that I did down there was funded and, um, you know, it just paid me enough to get the f- samples and then do the work. Um, it's not a, a pleasant place to be in. Obviously it's, um, right. it's, it's very busy. They place anywhere between one and three bodies every week. And so, um, it gets crowded. Um, it's not a huge facility. It's about the size of a, you know, small parking lot. Um, and it's, it's hilly and it's wooded. So, um, yeah, you can't walk far without seeing a, a body in some state of, of decom- decomposition. That's insane. I mean, it's like, a, it sounds like a zombie film, you know, it's like exactly what you see when you're yeah. watching the, the movies. Uh, I mean, I imagine most of the money goes to nose plugs and, and, and sort of that stuff you, that balm you wipe no. underneath your, no, no, you don't do any of that. Don't do any of that. Cause that, that would only only sort of covered up temporarily and then you'd get a, a big whiff and the best thing to do is you just acclimate so <laughs> yeah you just go in and you get used to it and because uh, your body desensitizes on sensations right so you smell it really strong when you first walk in if it's summertime and then right. um, over time it sort of you know gets less and less and you just get used to it um, but I mean you do you do want to wash your clothes because uh, it, it, you know it can like any smell it can stick to the clothes a little bit so you <laughs> Most of us change our clothes, yeah. um, but we actually suit up a little bit. Um, you know, we're not obviously protecting the bodies, but what we're doing is trying to not contaminate them with different kinds of bacteria and things like that that might change um, their state of decomposition. So, right. um, wow. yeah, it is fascinating work, but it's difficult work. I mean, it's hard not to have an emotional re- emotional reaction when you're working with, um, you know, a, a dead person because uh, this is somebody who was, you know, walking around a few days before. So it's yeah. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's hard not to let it upset you a little bit. (laughs) Yeah. I imagine it's a a very, very strange sensation. Very, I mean, it's the whole idea of that facility is, is, um, yeah, it's not something that a normal person would mentally be, be able to handle, you know, I think. No, no, it's it's not for the faint of heart. No, no, no. (laughs) Not for the faint of heart. Uh, Do you know the story of how the, how it got started? The first one? I feel like I do, but remind me. So there was a, a anthropologist, forensic anthropologist named Bill Bass. He's still alive, um, and he was was the only state certified forensic anthropologist in the state of Tennessee at that time. And this was in the 1970s. And he was called by some sheriff, I guess in Knoxville, I'm not sure. And they said, "We found some remains, and we'd like you to to tell us how old they are." Um, and so he came out, and they were treating it as a crime scene. Crime scene. It was a shallow grave, that kind of thing. It was. Mostly just bones, and he said, you know, this this is beyond a few months, but it's definitely not more than you know a year or two, because um, it's relatively intact. So I can't say for sure, but it's more than three or four months, but less than a year, let's say. Mm. Well, it turns out they were actually able to identify the body, and it was a Civil War veteran. So he was oh, wow. off by about 110 years. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and that was when uh, Dr. Bass realized holy cow, we have no idea what we're doing when it comes to right. um, decomposition and estimating states of decomposition when we when we have unknown remains. So he said, well, what we need to do is have a research facility to study this scientifically. So that's what he did. He contracted with the coroner. He got permission from the University of Tennessee, and it's been in that same location ever since. Um, and it operates just right outside the, uh, the back side of the parking lot of the hospital, that the University of Tennessee Hospital. Um, it's not very auspicious. You would drive right past it and not know anything. The local employees, of course, know where it is. And in the summertime, it makes its presence known. (laughs) But, um, it's, um, yeah, it's been, they've been humming along now for 40 years. It's amazing that, you know, a guy, a medical professional, I mean, the the history of medicine is littered with people who do the wrong thing, uh, and never admit to it. And it's nice that a guy, you know, admits to it and then changes it and kind of creates a facility 
to study it. Yeah, uh, I like that part of the story. Um, but now, now, so let's get into this book. We we got, went in a nice little rabbit hole here, um, mm-hmm. and I love mm-hmm. that because that's a really fascinating aspect of what you do. And what you you know, the book is about something completely different on the surface, let's say, mm-hmm. um, but equally as fascinating. It's about human. It's called human errors, and it's about all the kind of goof ups in the human body that we don't really think about. Um, I want to start by talking about two that are do not show up in the book uh one you one you mentioned in another paper and then one I came up with I want you to tell me tell me about it but the one you brought up I thought was really interesting and that is um I think you were quoted saying this is the most useless part of the human body and it's the um pyramid pyramidalis muscle which is mm-hmm. used pyramidalis to flex, muscle yeah which is mm-hmm. used to flex a non-existent tail that we used to have mm-hmm. so this, mm-hmm. this still exists does it like attach to our cossacks yeah, it does. Not not to the coccyx, but it does um, uh, attach to mostly just soft tissue on one end. Um, and it, it, this is the thing is it's also slightly different from person to person. So when – and anatomists have known about this muscle for years and have been writing about it. Hmm. Um, and this was the kind of thing that was came no surprise to that community. But a lot of people outside of that community didn't realize this. But yeah, it does, it does uh, attach to the stump of the coccyx on one side and really just a smooth muscle on the other. And some people have it, some people don't. And you can squish around a little bit in that area. Um, There are lots of slang words for that area, but basically between the anus and either the testicles or the um, oh, the, the, vagina, taint, vagina. the taint or the chode. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's what I'm talking about. Right. So you can sometimes squish that around and the muscle can do that. But it doesn't have anything to do with continence or um, – you know, bowel control or anything like that. It has literally no no function whatsoever. It doesn't do anything. And if you if you remove it, you don't have any loss of, of any of that. And in fact, the whole tailbone itself is vestigial in the sense that um, it is true that it bears some of the weight as we sit. But if you lose your tailbone and you can get cancer and it's a bone like any other and you can get uh, bone cancer in your coccyx, they will remove it. And individuals who have a coccygectomy have no trouble sitting down. So it really doesn't do anything for you. Uh, in fact, actually, we shouldn't be spending time sitting very long anyway. <laughs> right. um, but that's another. That's another. Uh, but yeah, the coccyx and the pyramidalis muscle are both uh, truly vestigial in the sense that there's no real current function to them. They're not the only ones, but yeah. So is there? What is? So now that we're on this, what is the medical term for uh, for the taint for the area between your you know. Your the anus the and your perineum. Throat. Yeah, the perineum. It's called, it's called the perineum, or sometimes pronounced perineum. Okay, so there is a real yeah, technical so, term for this. Yeah, perineum. Yeah. So that's not what. So you know, like scientists and, and doctors aren't running around calling it. Uh, you know, very. They would call it the perineum, and it. the time. It's not. It's not clinically important very often, except. Right. <laughs> except um, that's where they where they sometimes slice women during childbirth when they perform an episiotomy. Oh yeah. Um, that's where they slice. And the problem is that episiotomies are almost never medically indicated. So they finally have stopped doing it. But um, uh, the, in the old days, in the 60s and 70s, they always, let's just give her a little help and give her an open wound right oh in the God. middle of her crotch. Oh, yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. It's really not a good idea because, uh, in fact, I know someone who, who pushed um, – pushed twins through and the first twin was much bigger than the second twin and the doctors had to change in between twins because of an emergency and the second doctor performed an episiotomy during the second delivery. Oh my God. It was like the first one was fine and now we're doing this. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> yeah, but that's, that's called the, the perineum and it's totally unnecessary. But what's, in, but what's interesting about the perineum is that it shows the homology between the male and female body because uh-huh. while it's shorter in females, it, you can see it was like a midline uh, in the undercarriage before there were any genitals whatsoever, it was this midline between the anus and then what was going to become coming later. Right. And then the folds grew into either the labia or the scrotum, mm. but the, perine- the perineum is just sort of right there. So it's, right. that's another sort of leftover from evolution is this – if you look under at an embryo, you see it's like looking into the past. Mm-hmm. Um, from simpler states of our of our body, yeah. I mean, that's what's what, what I love about this is like the entire book is really built on the building blocks of evolution and this whole idea that you know our form, like we can't evolve anything beyond you know we use existing forms to kind of create new 
um, de- biological devices, so to speak. You know, like mm-hmm. if you're making wings, your arms become the wings, or you know, it's like these small little subtle changes to the current system. And so, no overhaul is can ever really happen because you have these existing structures that kind of have to be used. Uh, I mean, extraordinarily fascinating. So let me ask you. So here's here's mine, um, which to me this feels like a design flaw, and I feel like as a man, you're going to agree with me. Um, why why are the testicles located outside of the body? Why are they not covered in bone? Why are they so sensitive? You know, I understand sperm has to be kept at a lower temperature. I get that. But why couldn't we um, evolve it in some way where that was not the case? And this is true amongst, you know, most mammals, I believe, right? Yes, most mammals. So y- this is a perfect example, and, y- and you stated it very, very well. Well, thank There's you. There's absolutely... There's no reason that the testicles have to be outside of the of the body cavity, of the main abdominal cavity. It is true that sperm uh, develop better a couple degrees lower, but that's because they're outside the body. You, you know, it's important not to interpret that the wrong way. It, it's not like they escaped the abdomen um, because they needed the cold space and that's where they went and found it. They have, they've adapted to the co- slightly colder environment and that's where it's optimal. Hmm. Um, sperm, because there's no like, it's not like, optimal sperm optimal temperature for sperm development is like some constant in the universe like the speed of light or right. <laughs> uh, no it's it, it will develop at whatever it's adapted to develop at and in fact if you look at all of the cetaceans so these are the dolphins and whales they have uh, internal testicles and they do just fine they have no trouble making sperm um, so what happened was in the earliest mammals uh, this is this is my thinking um, mm-hmm. and remember also ovaries do fine just inside and they're right. also making gametes so right i was gonna say nothing. eggs are inside yeah it's all the same thing. <laughs> yeah women they gotta yeah i out. mean yeah i mean the sperm are a little different than eggs in the sense that you have storage and all that but it's it's still it doesn't make any sense it's no it's not biochemically necessary for it to have been that way but what i think happened is you had um uh, testicles that that were in near the abdominal wall and our ancestors were not warm-blooded the way that we are. And so as the body temperature began to warm, as endothermy evolved in our lineage, it was just the, the testicles were already right almost on the outside anyway. And so that they didn't have to adapt hmm. to the warmer temperature. They just – the easier adaptation was just to migrate out of the inguinal canal and come outside. It's a flip of the coin. It could have gone one way or the other, and in some lineages <laughs> it didn't go that. And it was just that was the adaptation that happened to come quicker um, some change was probably necessary, but some change was necessary in every single cell of the body because every single cell of our body is adapted for 37 degrees Celsius, mm-hmm. every single cell, except for a few, uh, as we talked about in, in, uh, in the testes that are, that prefer 35. Um, so, so every cell that was, that would, whose ancestors preferred a colder environment had to make those biochemical tweaks to get back up to where they're working right at 37. So with the testes, they just decided to take the simpler route and say, I'm out of here. Right. And they migrated out of the inguinal canal. And now, of course, this is a huge vulnerability for males. Right. Um, but you have to remember that you're thinking about this only as a male, and I'm a male, and so we, right. and males, we have, you know, we're very egocentric. Species, right. we're also an egocentric gender. Right. Um, but the thing is, is that actually males are extremely expendable in the animal world. Um, you you need one male for every thousand females, you know, as a if you want to be literal about it. You really males are really just good for very little mm-hmm. uh, in terms of species. That really the sperm's all we got. So right. there just wasn't the kind of intense selective pressure on testes because males just aren't near as important for, for the species. I, I, you know, it hurts our ego to say that. But, yeah, I'm all right um, with it. Um, and then, of course, the other vulnerability besides just the fact that it can get hurt and injured and all that is that it creates a weakness, a little bit of perforation in, in, the, in the abdominal cavity. Mm-hmm. And so what's called an inguinal hernia is something like 10 times more common in males than in females because there's a leftover weakness in the abdominal wall from when the, when the testis uh, migrated through. So if you know anybody who's ever had an inguinal hernia, that's not the umbilical one, not the one up in your tummy, but the one down in your crotch, yeah. you, can tell, you can tell him or her that's when it's left over from when his testes migrated out of his abdomen <laughs> <laughs> when he was young, when Which he was, was a either coin in flip. utero. Or, <laughs> but that's a, I mean, yeah. that's a coin flip. That's what's so amazing to me is every time, you know, now I'm thinking every time I'm going to get, you know, when I'm playing basketball, getting racked in the, in the nards, I don't want to get like, think that it could have been a coin flip and it could have been fine. Um, you know, that's, that's ridiculous. 
But anyway, that's that's as it goes in in the human body. You know, it's funny because th- that specific example, I specifically remember being in high school, and I had a, a biology teacher. Um, and I remember when this came up, I, I was thinking the same thing, like, well, why why are the testicles outside the body? And his answer was, oh, well, that's because um, that's because the, the sperm, you know develops at a, at a lower temperature and he was also religious so he was like well you know mm-hmm. god doesn't make mistakes and i'm like well hey i don't think you're supposed to be telling us that in a yeah. science class <laughs> but also like that that just feels like a mom saying well because you know it's like well mm-hmm. no as you just mentioned they didn't have to develop that way um that one always just struck me as, as a very very strange situation but you know there, there are a million strange situations in this book but one thing i want to talk to you about um from an intellectual level, because this is something that I feel like I've read this someplace. I'm not the first person to kind of have this idea. But, you know, in the book, you really you really kind of hit home this idea that evolution is these micro-evolutions. So there's no real, you know, there's no huge evolutionary jumps. Everything are these small, little, extraordinarily random events. Um, you know, I, 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 I don't... This is my logical thinking. I don't have any, you know, letters after my name. But... but there aren't a lot of random things that happen in science, really. And so when, when we start looking at like this idea that everything, that they're just random mutations, I, I don't know that I believe that because what, what, what makes sense to me is our DNA and our, and our genome and our, and our biology is such that when certain environmental factors exist, those mutations, quote-unquote, would be significantly... The probability that adaptable mutations would occur seems to me like it would be higher. For example, um, you know the fish that you know the the you know the fish that comes out of the water and grows legs, right? Well, obviously, it didn't like happen overnight, but this slow evolution of coming from the sea to the land, you know, wouldn't it make more sense that as a fish over generations becomes close to the surface, that that extraordinary environmental change will is actually the driving force for mutation, and they don't just sit close to the edge of the land and the water waiting for a random mutation to occur so that they can pop out. So I have, I, I have bad news for you. I okay. good news and bad news. Good okay. news. You're almost right. Okay. That's fair <laughs> enough. All right. You're almost right. The bad news is you just have to change a little bit of the phrasing and you've got it. So okay. the, what, what you said was that the, these extraordinary uh, situ- environmental situations cause the mutation. And that's not correct. Well, I said a higher probability, a higher probability to cause a mutation. But it does, the environment has no effect on the mutation. What it is, is it selects for that mutation. But the ba- in the background, all the time, there are mutations going on in your body. Um, and they're random, and they're uncontrolled, and they can be major or minor. They, and they're just constantly building up what we call this neutral resource of genetic variability. That if it's bad, it kills you. If it's good, it helps you. But 99.9% of the time, it's neutral. And you just build on that variation. Let me give you an example. So the ability uh, to drink milk among Europeans, we'll say, uh, to drink milk after adulthood. So usually after uh, the age of weaning, and that it can, you can tweak this between age, say, two and nine, um, you lose the ability to digest milk, to digest the, the, the sugar that's found in milk, lactose. And most adults prior to, say, 6,000 years ago in Europe, would have been lactose intolerant, like the rest of the planet. Outside of of Europe, most of the rest of the planet is lactose intolerant. Um, Well, at the the right place at the right time, a point mutation occurred that actually kept that gene on. And then you had individuals who could continue to drink milk throughout their lives. And what an enormous advantage that was, because the person who first had it, they were already – farming. They already had livestock. We actually don't believe it was cows first. It was goats. So goats were being used. And by the way, they were even working with the milk. They were making cheese and yogurt from the milk, but they knew they couldn't drink the milk right out. But if it turned into cheese, they could, because there's no, there's not much lactose left in cheese. It all gets, gets metabolized. So, but so in other words, there, here was the right time where the perfect mutation could come in and then Boom, the advantage, because you got to remember what a huge advantage that was. Milk is highly nutritious, lots of fat and protein. It's also mobile, so you take it with you. You can never run out, and it's the cleanest source of water that you ever would have had. So it just had so many uh, advantages for it. Now, 
you know, you would say, well, what are the odds of that happening at the right place in the right time? I would say pretty good because when you're when you're hitting things all around the genome randomly, eventually, you know, you will have the perfect lightning strike. And the way that we know this is it's happened three other times in the human population. So there are a tribe of pastoralists in sub-Saharan Africa. And they also are now able to drink milk, and, and it's goat's milk, again, that they use. Um, and it's because they've been, you know, as shepherds, living as shepherds for hundreds, if not thousands of years. And the right mutation came along, and it's a totally different mutation than the one that we see in Europeans. And so if it were that the environment created the mutation, then it wouldn't be the same mutation. It's two, it's two totally different mutations, but they have the same effect. So what the environment does is it does not cause mutation, it selects mutation. So it, it picks winners and losers, and it does so fairly quickly on, on geological timescales. Hmm. I mean, it is interesting. Now, now I will say that I, I, you, you know a lot more than I do. I don't know that you've convinced me, because, I mean, you know, Galileo, before Galileo, people thought that, you know, there were scientists who said, well, the, we revolve around, you know, the Earth, sun revolves around the Earth. I'd Damn it. And they were totally wrong. Um, but they said it with extreme authority. Uh, so I'm going to go into the minority here. I'm putting my money down. I think environment, I think we're going to find Here's out. Here's what I would say to you, though. Here's yeah. what I would say to you. All right. Um, there's no mechanism for the environment creating a specific mutation. Like how does the environment reach into your DNA, know which thing to change and change it? Whereas – the randomness of mutation, we have that pretty well worked out. We know about mutation rates. We know where mutation hotspots happen. Um, we know how mutations spread through populations. So the theory of unguided mutations leading to natural selection, there's no gaps in our knowledge there. there the randomness makes us all uneasy. Trust me, I get that feeling too. It doesn't, it's not satisfying, but it's a, it's a fully coherent theory. Whereas the idea that the environment somehow causes the mutation you know, I have no clue how what mechanism could do that. How does how does the drinking of milk reach into the DNA, find the right gene and make the right switch? You know, there's just no even plausible mechanism for that. So I'm not saying you're wrong. I'm just saying there's no there's no way that we know of for it to be right. Well, I don't know that. I mean, I think that that paradigm that it reaches in and changes the DNA. I don't know that that is like necessarily the right mindset that I would have. It would be more of like you know as as the situation changes, I mean, I understand what you were saying, but I think that there, I think there's something other than random. I mean, the quantum mechanics is all based on this idea of random. Most people who study quantum mechanics don't really understand quantum mechanics. It seems entirely random. And I'm pretty sure that in 20 years or whatever, when we figure out the mechanics, it's going to be like, oh, that makes perfect sense. Like, it's not random. The, the idea of that science is random is, you know, it's not that I need a, a perfect narrative. I just don't know that that, I, I think science makes sense. I think that's like its hallmark. And so when, mm -hmm. when you start talking about random things, I don't know that it, it just seems random. There, there's, I just don't believe there's any way it can be random. And I could be wrong. I mean, it doesn't happen often. Well, but, but let me, very let me. I can give you more examples. So um, okay. one of the most famous scientists in uh, molecular evolution, his name is Richard Lenski, and he's been running this experiment for 40 years. Um, it's called the long-term um, evolution experiment. Anyway, he set up 12 flasks and all in identical conditions. And all 12 flasks of these bacteria had some of their adaptations all that occurred in all 12 flasks. So in other words, they started to grow faster, right? Because you get a very competitive environment. They all, but the precise mutations that they took to get there were totally different in all 12. So the environment created the, the setup, which it was the competition. And of course, the reward of growing faster is leaving more offspring and taking over the flask, blah, blah, blah. But the, but if there was anything that the environment was doing, why is it doing it totally differently in the 12 different flasks? They all ended up with a totally unique set of mutations with the same long-term effect, which is, of course, to grow faster. That wasn't the only change. There's lots of other changes in these. I mean, yeah. he's been writing. He's, he's in the National Academy of Science. I mean, he's, he's got tons and tons of articles on this. And he's seen all kinds of crazy random things that happen, but they're only random in the sense that um, it's like a punch, a hole punched into the wall, but it's not random what we see winning. So, mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. nature, nature doesn't give the mechanism, 
but nature picks the winners and losers. So the, the final result is trimmed by nature. And he's even seen some weird things in one flat that happens in one flask and not others. For example, the ability to, to digest citrate in an oxygen rich environment. This is a new ability that one of his flask of bacteria was able to come up with, which of course gave him a huge advantage, but it was such an incredibly unlikely event because it required sort of rearrangement of part of the genome, such an unlikely event, but it happened, you know, 40 years of these, these bacteria growing as fast as they can, crazy, crazy, unlikely things do happen every now and then. And this one had an advantage, but none of the 11 flasks were able to do that. Even though they have citrate in their growth medium, there would be an advantage. It's just too big of a hill to climb. And the one flask just got incredibly lucky. So like I said, there's, I'm not, I would not say that we have it all worked out. What yeah. I'm saying is we have a coherent theory where there aren't, there's no gaps in our knowledge about that. We just, but it's just one key part of it is the randomness of mutations and genetic alterations. And that you are not alone, by the way, in feeling quite uncomfortable with that as an explanation, but it's, it's what we've got. <laughs> well, yeah, no, and that makes sense. I mean, you know, the citrate, I think there are random mutations, but like, you know, for example, if, if you take a raindrop and you put it on a, a piece of glass, like it'll take one path and another raindrop will take a totally different path. Uh, you know, if you put the raindrop in that same path, you know, it'll follow the path of the previous one because it's got the water line. It's not a perfect example, but, you know, this idea of chaos theory that there are these small micro mm -hmm. differences on the surface of the glass alter which way that the raindrop's going to fall. And I think that, that the, uh, you know, I think you, you would agree that DNA is, there's a lot of moving parts <laughs> when it comes to DNA and genes and, and you know, replication yeah. and all these things. So, so I, I, all I'm saying is that what we see as random may be random. And it, and it maybe not. And I'm guessing I'm putting my money down. I'm going to Vegas, and I'm saying in 15 years, I think some of that random nature is going to be figured out. Um, but I could be 100 percent wrong. Uh, well, listen, we've been wrong about some stuff before. That's yeah. for sure. Uh, there's a lot of stuff that we said could never be done and was done. But when it does come to when when, when the discoveries do come, um, usually what we find is it doesn't mean it's not that that this whole line of thinking was wrong and we just have to throw it out. It's a tweak, mm -hmm, right? right? So it's a, it's a nuance. It's adding nuance. And that's what's so frustrating sometimes in communicating scientists, science to non-scientists is it seems like we're saying something different all the time, but what we're actually doing, if you can, it's like a spiral that's zeroing closer and closer right. into the, the truth, which is at the center. Right. Um, and, and there's no other way to do that because science is incremental and no generation has the final word. Everybody that comes after us will complete and correct what we're doing. And, and that's just, and that's the beauty of it also. And it takes some pressure off too. Sometimes I, I, you know, scientists get really worried about publishing things. They know they did everything right, but they're afraid to put it out there and be wrong because they know people will disagree. I'm always like, you're going to be wrong about stuff as a scientist. That's going to happen. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. but, uh, but you can still contribute to the field, um, by doing that because you put an idea out there, people test it. And, you know, you, that's how knowledge advances. You know, every failure is, is something learned. Yeah, but no one wants to be the guy who came up with, with the, the boneheaded theory that everyone proved wrong, you know? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's true. Nobody remembers them. And I think yeah. that's a flaw in how we talk about science, frankly, because right. those, those bad ideas um, really led to good science because the only way to really get rid of a bad idea is to test the hell out of it and to test it well. Um, and so... Yeah. <laughs> so would you be for like so would you be for like the raspberry version of like the Nobel Prize? So like the scientists of the year came up with the dumbest theory but it pushed forward another great theory? Well, I would certainly like to see us acknowledge uh, acknowledge when that phenomenon happens. Yeah, I would be be, be careful. I don't want to call it a Razzie because I think a Razzie is, <laughs> is a genuine insult, right? But, you know, yeah. sort of like an honorable mention um you know, and, okay. and in fact, actually, I'm working on a project now, and I can't I can't say too much about it because uh -huh. it's very very early on. Sure. But I was inspired by somebody who said something to me that I am absolutely sure is wrong, mm -hmm. and I. But it was but it's interesting to me, and it's curious. It's something mm -hmm. about how the genome works and how mm -hmm. the genome evolves over time. And part of this project that I was designed was I want to get the answer to that. And believe me, I would love it if I'm wrong and he's right because it's I'd still get an answer. Like I'm not I'm not biased exactly. But um, but he got me thinking because I don't believe it can possibly work that way. <laughs> so I want to prove him wrong. Right. And that's yeah. And, and, and good friends can have passionate disagreements. In fact, I was actually 
um, at an event last weekend at the World Science Festival. And I was talking to David Sloan Wilson. And earlier in that day, I was talking to um, uh, Michael Shermer. And they, they vigorously disagree on group selection and multi-level selection, but they like each other. They're friends and they, you know, and, and 95% of their worldview is totally compatible. But on this one issue, everybody thinks of them as these, you know, rivals when really what's just going on is we're, this is how science works until you have a clear answer. You're going to have camps and you know, we're people just like anybody else. And we all want to be right. And so we do the best we can. And, that, and, that's what, and that's what's so great about science is it doesn't depend on any one personality. It's the whole community. It's self-correcting. We might get things wrong, but for a very, very short amount of time before the entire community you know, comes in and corrects, and that's how we advance. Well, that is a very human trait. Uh, I would argue a flaw that we have to still have a very tribal mentality. You know, it's still red team, Absolutely. blue team. Uh, which which always strikes me as very odd, um, but I want to. Well, talk- well, let me. But, yeah. but let me. Let me. Let me just expand on that. I don't want to let it go, Dan, because I agree with you that that uh, tribalism and tribal mentality um, were so easy, so willing to pick up teams and then and fight against those teams. And so it seems like such a negative. I don't know that we could have ever built society without that. So it might have negative consequences, but overall, it's really hard to see us get to where we are without that. Sure. I mean, it's, 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 but, but I mean, like much like the other things in your book, it feels a little useless now, you know, like, yeah, I mean, yeah. it, it definitely, definitely not useless. That's a strong word, but definitely uh, derisive in, in places where we don't need it. And it's kind of everywhere. There's no real one specific area where you could say like, mm-hmm. oh, it's only here. It's like, it's in almost in every line of thought. Um, you know, like here, here's an extremely fringe example, um, that, that, you know, and I'm going to use this because I think there's, it's, it it represents kind of a generic example that people may or may not fall into, but I think fewer people are going to fall into this camp. But I went to, um, a contact in the desert, which is a UFO conference, um, here in Los Angeles. And so most people, when they think of people who are interested in UFOs are like, oh, their, their UFOs are being visited by extraterrestrials and, and there are people who don't believe in that, right? So two very simple camps. And it turns out that the people who believe in UFOs, none of them get along. And no one would know mm-hmm. that unless you were in that camp. So even when you think people who, you know, I don't want to say ostracized by society, but are definitely a minority or have been for a long period of time, even those people fight amongst themselves on where UFOs come from, you know, who's, you know, is Bigfoot a part of that? Like even the fringe people who should be all working together because there, there aren't as many of them, they're still infighting there. And, and, and like that, that seems particularly harmful, you know, no, when, when people I, are, I you know. It's, it's the same bizarre. in the Bigfoot, the Bigfoot community. Yeah, it's the same yeah, in the Bigfoot yeah, community. Yeah. They, you know, each one has a very different take on that classic video. The name yeah. I can't remember now. And um, oh, oh my God, I should know this off the top. Yeah, you yeah, know yeah, the yeah, one. Yeah. You know the one. Of course, one and from the seventies. So, it's super famous. Yeah. So oh. that, I mean, that's that's, and I've had a, a taste of that myself. So when I first um, ended up in, in with my horns locked with the intelligent design community. Mm-hmm. Um, I felt like I was just like in this weird street fight because they don't actually all agree with one another. They have very, very different positions Mm -hmm. all in this big umbrella called intelligent design. So I was often arguing with people, but I was arguing with a position that they don't hold actually. So they were like, I never said that. I don't believe that. And I'm like, wait a minute, but I read this like, well, that's not me. That's somebody else. So their whole community is actually quite divided on a lot of big issues. And um, so they don't have one coherent theory of intelligent design. And so I, that's why it was like, I was, you know, punching a sheet. I, I couldn't mm-hmm. get anywhere. Right. Um, and I eventually just disengaged cause they need, if they want to be taken seriously, they have to come up with a scientific coherent, you know, a coherent scientific theory <laughs> right. and they don't have that yet. Right. So I, I'm, I'm pretty much, you know, done with them. But for a long time I was fighting with these intelligent designs and I felt like I was just chasing my tail because none of it. None of it made any sense. And but and what what's funny though is they still have the tribal mentality though. Mm-hmm. They still mm-hmm. have the glue that they're in the minority against the evolution believing scientific community, and so they ha- they lock arms with each other in public. So you'll never see them criticize each other. You'll never see them disagree with each other. I mean, very 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 rarely. Mm-hmm. Even though they have fundamental disagreements about like the age of the earth and common mm-hmm. descent. I mean, really big questions they disagree with. But the tribalism, you know, that trumps it all. So they will only have those discussions in private. In public, they're all on the same time that right. science is, you know, is wrong and 
But I mean, so, but that know. is such. But that is you know this this goes right into the your book because you have like as you mentioned you have a whole section on on these kind of cognitive flaws that we have and that fits uh-huh. right into there because it's it's this flaw in human thinking that obviously as you mentioned evolved for a reason because it was extraordinarily helpful, um, but there's an ex- you know there's a huge downside to it as well. Um, you know, one of the other things I want to get to before we run out of time here, because I think it's it's an interesting segue, because it kind of articulates perfectly what we're talking about here, but on a biological level, and that is the development of sickle cell disease, which uh-huh. the, the whole chapter in this I thought was just amazing from an evolutionary standpoint, like mm-hmm. what what it is, how it developed, why it developed, and the fact that it has extraordinary <laughs> advantages and disadvantages. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was just it just had Every, it was like the perfect Hollywood story to me. It had everything: um, action, adventure, death, um, survival. Um, so, so can can we talk about this for a little bit? Yeah, I'd be happy to. I mean, the sickle cell trait is is a really interesting thing, as you said, genetically. Because um, on the one hand, if if so, we, we all have two copies of every gene in our body, two versions, we'll say mm-hmm. they're not necessarily copies of each other, but two versions of every gene. One you got from your mom, and one you got from your dad. Mm-hmm. Well, um, there's this one that that uh, what the gene is doesn't matter. Um, we'll just call it the sickle cell gene. And if you have two normal copies, everything's fine. Um, if you have two poor copies of this gene, two mutant copies of this gene, you will have sickle cell anemia. And in modern, in the modern world, if you're in a developed country, uh, it will probably not kill you. You will have cr- moments of crises, particularly if you don't have good health insurance. Um, but if you, you can live with it, you can reproduce with it. But that was not true for a very long time. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a lethal condition to get two mutant versions of this gene. And so it became a genetic conundrum as we realized how old this gene is in our history. And we can do that by doing population genetics because mm-hmm. we see it in all kinds of populations around the world. How could something so harmful – I mean remember, it's lethal. We're mm-hmm. not talking about a bruised testicle here. We're talking right, about right. a lethal condition. <laughs> right. How could it not have been eliminated by – evolution. Why would natural selection not just remove it from the population and quickly? Well, the answer is that, well, if you get two copies, you're done. But if you have only one copy of this gene, so either you got it from your mom or your dad, then you actually have this weird condition where you're resistant to malaria. So you no longer, you won't get the sickle cell tra- disease. You, you can sometimes have um, small uh, symptoms, but not, you know, just in very specific cases, if your blood count drops and during strenuous exercise, but for the most part, you're fine, but you're resistant to malaria because the, the parasite, uh, the plasmodium parasite doesn't like those misshapen red blood cells. And so you're resistant to malaria. So that's why it's persisted in the population for so long is that the heterozygotes or the hybrids, if you want to call them that had such an advantage because they don't get malaria and they don't get sickle cell anemia. But the ones on, on, but it will never completely take over the population because if you have two normal genes and you don't get the malaria resistance, so it's there's no way to fully win. It's a tug of war where only the middle state is the as the advantageous one. And believe it or not, I was lecturing on this one time, and there was a creationist in the audience who said, "Well, this seems pretty simple to me." Then, you know, this malaria, this horrible curse of malaria. God's gift was the sickle cell gene. God's gift to these populations was the sickle cell gene. So I want you to think about all the things that have to be true for that statement to make sense. First to? of all, that that God that God couldn't do anything better right. than to people with this lethal disease than giving them another lethal disease. <laughs> right. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so we'll kill we'll kill a quarter of the population this way, a quarter of the population this way, and some of them will survive. Yeah. Um, just a ridiculous notion. Um, but what's interesting is that in the population genetics is the in, today in today's populations the only populations that really have a lot of the sickle cell gene are are those who are descended from populations where malaria was a, a constant problem. Mm. So sub-Saharan Africa, the Indian subcontinent, uh, Southeast Asia, um, mm. and a little bit in the Americas, but we believe the Americas actually is the African uh, DNA in, in, the, uh, in the Americas, right? Because there wasn't a lot. So, so that's just such a cool evolutionary story. It's tragic, but it also shows the limits of evolution. Evolution doesn't create perfection. Right. It's such a shame that natural selection couldn't have done better, but that's that's life. Yeah, that was kind of. I mean, you know, it's because it's funny, like how it it, it must have been extraordinarily uh, advantageous. It must have been, you know, if, however the, this mutation occurred. You know, it's just interesting that that it was so effective, 
but also so deadly. Like that is really the curse of the sickle cell gene. And it, it's just fascinating these, to me, like these micro evolutions that have occurred because, you know, human history has been around for so long. And, you mm-hmm. know, as populations stay in certain parts of the world, as, as human beings have kind of explored and taken over the world and, it, it, you know, kind of walked into other, you know, other um, food chains and, and other, you know, biomes. Uh, it's just it's interesting how the the adaptations kind of exist amongst you know all of the different you know races and, and population of the world. It's just fascinating these microevolutions that give you these distinct advantages um, in certain climates. I mean, it's it's just fascinating that like you know evolution is still very modern. You know, I mean from from a it is, historical it sense, is. we are still we are still evolving. And one other thing to think about with sickle cell anemia specifically, but this will play out in other diseases as well. Is it's not just the environment; it's also in how the how the genes are passed on. So mm-hmm. we've also found mm-hmm. that in the genes with the highest degree of this have a long history of polygyny, meaning a single male with oh, right. a harem yeah, yeah. A, a harem of wives. And when you have when you and, and what this means, and every by the way, lots of men when they when they think of that lifestyle, they think it's great. Let me tell you. That's the worst thing for males is polygyny because that means one male does well and 90% of the males don't get anything. <laughs> and they want to kill the male who's doing well. I mean, consider, right. yeah, I mean it's, it's now, actually yeah. a terrible life. Right. <laughs> monogamy, came, monogamy came about by basically uh, lesser males in, fort, in strict, you know, insisting on having <laughs> equal access. That was, it is not about the empowerment of There's women. It was democracy. the empowerment about lesser males. Right, right. <laughs> um, but anyway, when you have that, that – um, What's what's called very uneven uh, gene pool distribution. So uh, one individual will leave a much bigger genetic legacy than the rest of them, and so that's how alleles can spread extremely fast. Mm-hmm. Is is one individual? Genghis Khan was always the classic example. He left so many offspring all around Asia. So this one individual probably has now a billion descendants. Wow. Um, and so when you have really when polygyny meaning a man with lots of women, you have the ability to spread alleles very, very quickly. And so it seems to be that not only was there the environmental pressure, but there was also the social structures that allowed this to spread. And that's why you don't see it in some of the other parts of the world that do have mosquitoes and plasmodium. Right. They never got sickle cell anemia because the, the alleles just couldn't spread fast enough to do their thing. And I mean, that's what's fascinating about, you know, any of these microevolutions is that, you know, it's not just these random mutations, but it's also the social structure. Like, everything plays a part into how we've developed, which is, you know, and what people found, you know, attractive or, or you know, important for survival is also really interesting. Sure. Um, yeah. And it changes over time. It's a moving target. Survival is a moving target. Right. <laughs> no, it totally is. Okay. So, so you're going to stick around. We didn't get into a lot of the uh, design flaws. You're going to stick around for 10 minutes, right? We're going to talk about those. Yeah. Okay. Um, so this is fascinating stuff. A great place to end it. So how can people find your book, find you on the internet? I assume you're way into social media. The book is Human Errors. Uh, it's now out in paperback, so it's a little cheaper. Um, it's on Audible. Find stores near you, and you can um, find me on Twitter, Nathan Lentz. And I, um, I spend way too much time on Twitter, so I actually do usually answer most people who write me, unless unless you're mean. If you're mean, I don't answer you. But if you're a nice person <laughs> with a with a good question, I'll be happy to answer. Do you do uh, Facebook, Instagram, any of that stuff? Uh, not Instagram. I do Facebook. Yeah, I'm okay. also there. Uh, it's Nathan Nathan dot Lentz dot two. The number two or T-W-O or yeah. T-O-O or T-O? No, the number two, yeah. Okay. Apparently somebody beat me to it. Nathan.Lentz.2. Wow. And, and also on Tumblr, Nathan Lentz. Okay. Um, I will have, I'll have links to all that stuff. The book is Great. just incredible. It's paradigm shifting. I don't say that very often. Um, Human Errors, Dr. Nathan Lentz. Thank you so much for being on the show today. It's my pleasure. Happy to be here. Uh, and I want to thank everyone for listening. Have a good night. Fascinating Nouns is a Glenn co-production and is hosted and produced by me, Daniel J. Glenn. The show producer for this episode was Sarah Brandt. The Fascinating Nouns introduction was produced by Daniel J. Glenn and E.A. Barrientos with music and sound design written and performed by E.A. Barrientos. Go to fascinatingnouns.com to learn more about this episode, listen to all the past episodes, You can subscribe to our incredible newsletter at the bottom of the page. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and TuneIn. Links on the Fascinating Nouns webpage. And, of course, you can follow the show on social media. You can find links to the show's Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, YouTube, all at the bottom of the Fascinating Nouns webpage. 
And if you like this show, you're going to love my latest podcast, Fascinating Gadgets, Gizmos, and Gear-Based Technologies. That's FGGBT.com. That's FGGBT.com. That's where you can find the show, subscribe to the show. We take pop culture technology, tell you how to make it in real life. And by we, I mean me, physics phenom Dr. Michael Denon, our physicist, and of course, the enigmatic engineer Ben Seepser, former rocket scientist, current cyborg creator, and he and Dr. Denon talked to me about incredible stuff, including the multiverse. If you ever wanted to travel between dimensions, we're going to tell you how to do that. We do Luke Cage's skin. If you want to be a bulletproof skin, how can we accomplish that? If you want to be a superhero, this is the show to listen to, FGGBT.com. And if you like that show, you're going to love everything that I do. Go to DanielJGlenn.com to find out more. Thank you for listening. End of transmission.